Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman. And I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. Okay, guys, I've cooked up something amazing with my friend Natalie Y. Beavers, founder of Angels of Epilepsy, and it's all yours for free now. Go to my website at uninvisiblepod.com and download your free ebook called Hacking Healthcare, a resource guide Natalie and I have compiled using not only our experiences in the healthcare system, but also with the assistance of other patient leaders who have added their two cents. From a message of empowerment to notes on navigating health insurance and your doctor's visit, this is an invaluable guide intended to make healthcare more approachable and to give you the tools you need to succeed. This resource has been incredibly eye-opening and important to us, and we hope that with it, you will see real results and improve your experience in the system. Once more, that's a free download of Hacking Healthcare at uninvisiblepod.com. Go check it out, guys. Thank you. Okay, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with a long-awaited interview with someone who you may be familiar with, uh, especially if you're on social media following the pod. You may be familiar with Julian Gavino, who's also known as the Disabled Hippie. Julian lives with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and is here to talk to us about that as well as comorbid conditions and his experience not only of invisible chronic illness, but also of gender and the overlapping invisibility experiences there. So Julian, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, it's such a pleasure and a total honor. I've been wanting to do this for a long time. In fact, we sort of connected through Ariel, who was on the show last year. And um, yeah, I'm very excited to talk more about everything you've been through. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, let's dig right in. So I'd love to start at the beginning of your story. Can you tell us how and when you first realized that you were sick and what steps you've taken since then to control your health? Yeah, um, this has been a theme in my life forever. Um, I haven't always been physically uh, and visibly disabled, um, but I've always been pretty sick. Um, I started noticing around like age five. And one of the first things that was going on with me was malnutrition. Um, For many years, from five years old to on to like 12, no one knew why I was malnourished. Um, I had been like on and off feeding tubes. Um, And then another thing that was really kind of significant was migraines. Like as a very, very young child, I would get migraines and be like vomiting. And it was just very not normal. Um, And then into like adolescence, then it was like, dislocating a lot of stuff and it was passing out, um, just started to kind of get worse over time. 
Yeah. So this sounds like um, it was something that you eventually needed to get also mobility aids for, right? Because right now you use a wheelchair and a cane sort of here and there as needed, correct? I mostly use a wheelchair right now. Great. Um, and I you have a service still, dog. I do. He's yes. laying right next to me. Yeah. <laughs> How nice. That's lovely. Okay. Sorry. I cut you off though. Cause you were saying that you mainly use the wheelchair, but there was something else in there. Yeah. I can stand and walk, but not for like super long periods of time. It really depends on the day or like what I'm doing. Um, I still do try to walk around every day at least to like, yeah. Keep up with uh, muscle tone and being able to walk, but um, it's not—it's not a way that I choose to leave the house or anything. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You want to make sure that you've got sort of backup when you leave the house, as it were. It sounds like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, in this health journey, I mean, you mentioned that it started with malnutrition, um, you know, being on and off feeding tubes, migraines. Are these all associated with your Ehlers-Danlos uh, diagnosis? And how old were you when you actually got the diagnosis? Since this stuff all really started at five years old. Yeah. So the first thing that I was diagnosed with was celiac, um, which is an autoimmune condition, and also around that time was they were looking into my um, thyroid. Like they really had thought I had like Hashimoto's or Graves' mm. disease or something. And I did have abnormal antibodies in the thyroid, but it was not a high enough number for Hashimoto's because it has mm. to be a pretty significant number. Right. Um, but it was like, they've been watching it my whole like life, yeah. like as if it's going to be something that will kind of pop up, which... Mm. Um, Recently, it did. So, yeah. Ah, welcome to the club. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, yeah. Officially, they're like, well, it's, it's finally here, the moment you've been waiting for your whole life. Um, <laughs> Great. What an honor. <laughs> yeah. No. yeah. Um, so, pretty, like, as far as I know, um, most of the things I have are connected to EDS. We don't, they're still very under researched, and there seems to be sort of a group of conditions that follow EDS and then sometimes maybe not like, but we don't, we don't know a lot yet. It's really kind of confusing. I know we, we, we've had Laura Bloom, um, who's the executive director of the Ehlers-Danlos Society on the show and, you know, has taught us a lot about it. (laughs) And, um, it is one of those frustrating conditions, isn't it? Because as you say, it is under-researched, it's underfunded. You know, right now we understand that there are like possibly, you know, upwards of 15 different kinds of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And of course, because there's not enough funding to do the research, we don't know if they could be slightly different conditions yet. So there's still a lot of work to be done in that space, right? Yeah. So it's hard to say like what, parts of my conditions are responsible for autoimmune or like neurologically, or if it's the EDS causing all of that, like you Mm. don't really know, but, um, and no one can really, at least no one I've met has ever been able to like tell me definitively other, like an answer. So yeah, of course. And it's also hard to find practitioners, I imagine, which we're going to get into as well. Um, so I'm just curious to know, so like, you know, when your symptoms started, they were sort of, you know, stomach and then neurological is, do you still have 
these similar symptoms have, what have they developed into as an adult for you? Well, the thing that's been the most significant in my adult life is the neurological Mm. um, difficulties that I've had. Uh, When I was 18 and had just started college, I um, was diagnosed with a demyelinating type Mm. of neuropathy. Um, So sort of like mimics MS in a way. Yeah. Um, where it is relapsing and remitting and it's very uh, sensory motor um, kind of effective. So that that has been really difficult because it will kind of like attack or come on and I'll lose an ability or like lose function and then I have to try to work and like gain it back. Sometimes you can, sometimes the damage is too much. So that's for like about six years been really rough. Wow. And that sounds like it could be, again, you know, we don't know enough about this, could be related to the EDS, could be something entirely on its own, couldn't it? Yeah. Like I have no, no idea. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, what is that like for you emotionally, you know, to, to have conditions that like, you don't seem to totally have control of and to, you know, not really have answers in terms of like being able to put a label on it or being able to, you know, understand things through a medical lens because there's just not enough information. What does that do to your emotional state, especially when you're in flares? Well, when I was younger um, and I had all these weird, this weird array of symptoms, um, I was always really scared. Like even at night, every night before I went to sleep, you know, I told my mom that I was afraid I was going to die in my sleep. Um, and that's because I didn't know like what was going on. Uh, so every time I felt something weird, I was like, Oh no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to die. Um, so finding out slowly things that align with what I've been experiencing just in itself is comforting. Even if I don't have direct answers like what what what's going to happen or like you know how long will I live like even if I don't have these like definitive answers or what's causing this I still feel so much more comfort than I used to because I can still it's tangible to something Mm -hmm. absolutely Um, that makes a lot of sense and especially as a kid when that kind of stuff is happening especially, yeah. you know, sort of lacking awareness, right, of disability and chronic conditions, it's got to be even more scary then too. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I grew up um, female and as we know, um, a lot of the times when you are female, um, things can be blamed uh, like anxiety or like hormonally or it's your period or yeah. <laughs> um, you're mentally ill or like, you know, that happens disproportionately to women versus yeah. versus men. So, you know, there's that aspect of it also. Yeah. That certainly played into your experience for sure. Yeah. So in terms of, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, you would tell your mom before you went to sleep that you were worried about dying in your sleep, things like that. Did you find along this health journey from childhood to adulthood that you needed a personal advocate at any point? 
Or is that something that you sort of developed into yourself? Yeah, that's definitely something that I had to become on my own because um, I did have support, but my friends didn't really understand. My partner that I was with didn't understand. Um, She would try and be supportive, but, uh, you know, she just didn't really have like a caretaker personality or a sure uh, assertive like personality. And then my mom and my grandma both they both have EDS. Oh wow! But, yeah, but they didn't know. Like I was diagnosed first, and then we figured out that both of them have it. Wow. Um, so they both had spent their whole lives trying to figure out what was wrong with them Mm. and never coming up with answers um, or being misdiagnosed. So it was all very discouraging and I had to really pull from myself Mm. on that one. Yeah. And I mean, this is a huge part of who you are now as well. I mean, not only have you become an advocate for yourself, but you've also been very public about your advocacy in the disability space. Um, And you know, I'm wondering also whether that journey to public advocacy, that speaking out on social media and what have you, whether that's also been something that has affected your relationship with yourself. Has it helped you develop more confidence? Is it something that you had to fight through to, to get to? What's that been like for you emotionally? Um, a journey. Like when I started my Instagram, I did not expect this. I started it when I was sick in college and I couldn't work and I had to take a break from school. And I started it as a way to self cope because I felt alone and I felt like no one understood. Mm. Um, I wasn't really expecting people to uh, relate or like yeah. reach back out. Cause I really didn't think there was anybody who was experiencing all of these weird niche things that I was experiencing. Mm. Um, but it turns out there are, and it turns <laughs> out that it helps other people. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go with it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, so much of what you do is about what all of the different things you've been able to accomplish from a wheelchair, all of the different things you've been able to accomplish um, despite, you know, our, our personal hangups, whether they're related to frustrations about disability or, um, you know, relationships, things like that. I mean, so much of what you do is about shedding light, but also showing all of the beauty in the varied experiences that people can have in this disability world, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm wondering at this point, um, you know, it's been quite a few years since that you've been sick now. And um, I'm wondering what a typical day looks like for you as you're balancing the demands of work and life. I mean, you mentioned having to leave college because you couldn't work and stuff like that. You know, how are you managing symptoms day to day around the demands the world sort of puts upon us to be constantly working? Yeah. Um, well, I'm of course on a lot of medications as probably our most chronically ill people. Yes. Um, (laughs) You know, I do infusions. I, at the time I have a feeding tube. Um, So, you know, a good portion of my day still involves taking care of my health. Like what 
whether it's um, seeing the nurses that come to my house or the OTs or the PTs, therapies, um, you know, even just caring for a feeding tube, like all that stuff takes a lot of time. Um, When I'm not doing that, I'm working on my laptop or, you know, going outside or uh, taking care of Atlas, my dog. Yeah. Um, So it's, you just adapt, you adjust. It's things that a lot of people will say, oh, I could never do that. Or I would rather die or something. And it's like, no, you just, it, it can suck, but you just adjust. Yeah, absolutely. And at what point did Atlas come into your life as well? How long has he been around? He's been around for a couple of years now. Um, He's four years old. Um, I got him during a really rough time in my life where my mobility was like not the best. Um, and I was requiring a lot of help through family and, uh, my spouse and, um, friends. And I was trying to go back to school and, um, you know, I wanted to be independent and, I had known a few other people in the community to have service dogs and they found it helpful. So I started to look into it as something that might help me gain um, some independence back. Mm. And has, has it, has it been a positive experience working with Atlas? Yeah, absolutely. He's incredible. He's, um, you know, I've never had a living being care about me so much because you know, humans can care about you, but he doesn't care what I think about him or what he thinks about me. <laughs> just Yeah. It's unconditional it in a different way, yeah. isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. So. And I imagine there's also, you know, a mental health component there too, right? I mean, we know that when you live with chronic illness and disability, that mental health support's really important. Um, and are you finding that Atlas is able to help you not only from a physical place, but also, you know, when you're having you know, whether it's depression or, or anxiety about your conditions, about, you know, your day to day, is he also able to help with those kinds of situations too? Yeah, mentally he's been great. Um, you know, he definitely helps to relieve stress. Um, I think I've heard before that, you know, petting dogs like lowers your blood pressure or something. So, you know, they're very helpful in that sense. And, um, definitely with confidence as well. He's really Mm. over the past couple of years helped me uh, to feel like I can do things on my own. Um, Mm. Well, you know, with him, but yeah, without people. So that you're more independent Uh, because of him. Yeah. So definitely. And and he makes me happy too. Like, you know, I can never be mad at him for too long. So that's very, very true. Um, I'm also wondering, you know, now you have more perhaps visual signifiers, um, you know, from your mobility aids. Uh, but, you know, in the past, as your conditions were developing and progressing, and even, you know, from time to time now, when maybe you're without your wheelchair or maybe even for a moment without Atlas, have you ever found yourself in situations where you've been confronted and forced to justify or sort of validate the existence of your diagnoses to people who? couldn't understand them because they just couldn't see them. Oh, so you mean like before they were visible? Yeah, but even now, even now if it's something that people don't understand why you're in a chair or, you know, why you have a dog and they sort of 
I think there's a lot of judgment, you know, attached to that. I'm just wondering if you've been in situations where you've had to validate for other people that like there was something legitimate going on because they just didn't understand. Yeah, definitely old, older people sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like I had a, uh, this was obviously before quarantine, maybe a few months ago. I had Mm -hmm. a really weird, I was actually on a date, so it made it even weirder. Um, Oh gosh. (laughs) I hope it wasn't. Was it a first date too? No, it wasn't, but I still someone I didn't know very well. And we were taking Atlas to the park and, um, I was using my wheelchair and, I could only go so far into the park because the concrete, you know, ended and there was grass mm-hmm. um, and grass and wheelchairs. Just no, don't go, don't go. Don't mix. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, you know, stayed on the pavement and this uh, older man came in with a walker and he pointed at me, which first of all is, Oh God, don't point at people, but yeah, <laughs> it's like, just rude. <laughs> that, that starting off bad already. Yeah. Um, and he was like oh well why are you using that wheelchair and my date was like pointed it pointed back at him and said why are you using that walker oh I love that well this this sounds like a great date okay perfect (laughs) yeah no I was like wow okay like I'm glad this person barely knows me but it's like sticking up for me yeah he he just didn't know what to say he was like Mm. well the I'm old and he's like, but you just looked so young. And I was like, yeah, I was, I was like, I was just born this way. Like mm. anytime someone asks me like what's wrong or, you know, what happened? I'm always just like, I was just born this way. Mm. Cause like, what can they really say to that? You know? Yeah, <laughs> like, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting that you bring this thing up, this idea of disability being an elderly experience, right? That like so much of the stories that I hear from people in our Spoonie community, it's always that they're being um, discriminated against or commented on because they, they look young, so they should be well. This idea that because you're young, you must be well. Um, and it's, it's a fascinating one that, I mean, like in, in being so public about your experiences on social media that you're destigmatizing already, you know, but it's interesting when you come across people who are just not as progressed in their awareness, I guess. Right. Yeah, it is interesting. Um, cause a lot of them I've had, have had to do with age, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, or when I was like, uh, before I presented as male, either had to do with gender. Um, they seem to have to do with very surface level things. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that don't really, they don't really have any backing of evidence to them. No. And they also don't reflect who you really are, do they? You know, like these are limited ideas of, of what a person is because of some minor signifier, be it a wheelchair or otherwise. Right. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And do you think also, because you mentioned that, um, and for those who are tuning in right now, um, you know, Julian is quite open about the fact that he's trans and we're going to talk a little bit about that. But, you know, you mentioned that you were born female and that you had experiences in the medical system where people sort of wrote you off as the quote unquote hysterical female, right? And I'm Mm -hmm. wondering about in terms of your experience in the healthcare system, have you experienced either 
prejudice because, you know, being female maybe, um, or privilege, like as you have transitioned, has your experience of the healthcare system been smoother because you're presenting as male now as well? And can you see your circumstances being different if maybe you presented otherwise, like if you were a person of color or something like that? Well, um, interesting you brought it up because I was just talking to my partner about this yesterday Mm. and I was explaining to her that my life has taken a very interesting evolution of Mm. experiencing um, prejudice when I presented as female Mm. um, for being a hysterical lady. And then, um, and then I presented as male, uh, which I lived as, um, in the trans community, we say like as stealth for a while, which is Mm -hmm. like where, uh, I was like undetected as a trans person. I passed 100%. -hmm. Um, and they didn't tell people I was trans. Right. Um, and some people choose to do that because it's their choice. And some people do it for like safety reasons. Right. Um, I did it because I felt like I had to, Mm. to conform to the people around me. Mm. Um, when I presented that way, uh, I experienced privilege in not mm. being questioned uh, as much and, you know, getting treatments faster, getting things done, getting way better ER treatment, just wow. astronomically different. Um, so much to the point where I actually, I uh, partnered with someone to write an article about this. And this was one of my Instagram posts that like took off in my early days of writing. Mm. Um oh. Because a lot of people were like, I had never thought of that or heard of that before. Yeah. Um, You've really experienced both sides of the coin that way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then uh, now, even though my birth certificate, my license, everything says male and, um, you know, as far as the federal and Florida laws are concerned, Mm. I've, you know, completed everything to be considered a male. Right. Um, now that I have longer hair and have nails and maybe to some people look a little bit more ambiguous, hmm. now I experience uh, discrimination in that aspect because people can quote unquote tell that I'm trans, you know, wow. or tell that something is, uh, I don't know, different or right. however you want to word it. So it's almost like these perceptions, uh, the boxes that the outside world expects you to fit into kind of uh, don't really leave room for individualism in, in the sense that you're expressing yourself individually, do they? No, like I said, they all have to do with these very uh, minuscule hmm. surface level perceptions. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as you say, like your hair, your nails, like things like that, that, you know, suddenly are signifiers to people that, you know, maybe they're dealing with something they don't understand, you know? I mean, is that something that also, do you think that people are, if they're not understanding that they're reacting, like what is the sort of main reaction that you're getting? Is it one of fear, like a discrimination that comes from fear? Is it uh, confusion? Is it like, do people actually ask questions or do they just make presumptions? Both. Um, I I can give like a specific example. Please. Yeah. Like, kind of coming to the my present of this evolution that I described is um 
and I wrote a post about it. It's my most mm. recent one. Oh, okay. And well, I just, yeah, we'll have to yeah. highlight that for the listeners on the webpage. Yeah, definitely. I described that, um, I was recently reached out to by, um, we'll say an institution for like protection okay. reasons, uh, of somewhere that had been treating me hmm. and they needed to make me aware of the fact that there were people, um, making threats about me. What? Um, this yes, was a medical like, institution that had treated you? Yes. In a med- like, and I was just recently there like a month ago. Um, oh my goodness. That apparently they had gone through my social media. They were going way, way back in my files to quote unquote, you know, docs, the fact that I was trans and, um, there's like, you know, text message evidence of this apparently because someone else told on the person and it's all transphobia essentially. And it's all Mm. about, it all has to do with the fact that like, I don't appear, uh, the way that they think I should appear. Like, I don't, I don't look how they want me to. Um, Right. Right. So I think it's fear. Like a lot of the mm. times you hear about this and when there's violence against trans people, it, it seems uh, they seem to think we're like lying to them or, mm. you know, something needs to be exposed or they're finding out something about us that we were like withholding from them or it's all these weird, like, uh, like expectations, <laughs> isn't it? Yes. Yes. Like, so it's, okay. and just to clarify, was this, is this also like the threats that they described to you? Were they threats that were coming from the public and other patients or threats that were coming from within the care team? Care team? Like, Oh my God, that's so and, inappropriate. Oh yeah. And it makes me incredibly nervous because I was unconscious uh, during a lot of this hospital stay. Sure. And, you know, they were thinking about hurting me. Like, and that's, that's really scary. Yeah. Disturbing. And I, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. uh, I was just saying it made me think about like, would that have happened years ago to me when I fully presented at two others as male, you know? Mm. Um, Well, and I'm also, I'm wondering sort of, I mean, I suppose it does behoove them to inform you, you know, but at this point, it also behooves them as an institution to be suspending these caregivers, these practitioners, you know, and to be sort of making a statement to the state board, one would think, because any practitioner who's going to treat someone or refuse to treat or, you know, be uh, prejudiced in their care, it seems, um, and who has been vocal about that, it seems like they don't deserve a place in a a facility to treat anyone, do they? No, as a medical care professional, you take an oath, you know, saying that you're going to protect and um, treat individuals no matter, no matter what they are, what they look like, what they do, you know, and to Mm. think that somehow these people slip through the cracks and uh, think about either like withholding a medication or, you know, accidentally giving the wrong one or hurting someone or just something, uh, horrible like that is. And it's not something that, yeah, it's not something that you should have to be thinking about 
when you're seeking care from someone. You shouldn't have to be thinking about an additional threat to your health. It should all be about making you better. Exactly. Wow. That's really scary. And so is that something where you're probably not going to go back to that place, right? Uh, well, I'm moving. So like, so it's going to work out anyway. <laughs> hopefully before I move, no, mm. I do not have to go back there. I would, you know, I fully intend to, you know, take action against this, obviously. Um, because I don't want mm. that to happen to somebody else. No, but I mean, that also raises the question of like, how much of this is your responsibility to take care of other people when your own care is in question, you know, like, do you feel a responsibility to the rest of the disability community and particularly trans disabled individuals to make sure that, as you say, this doesn't happen to anyone else in the future? I always feel Mm. responsible. Yeah. And I think that's, um, that's hard. I've been trying to do steps towards uh, taking care of myself lately, especially with everything going on. Um, so much going on in the world that, it, yeah. you know, it always makes you feel like you need to talk about something or uh, advocate for something. And there always is something to fight for, but mm-hmm. it's important to rest also and take care of yourself or you can't fight for it. Yeah. <laughs> so. Absolutely. I'm just wondering about, you know, invisibility versus visibility. And um, in terms of your experience of gender and your experience of chronic illness and disability, have there been overlaps in experience that have reminded you of your invisibility or passing in these kinds of circumstances? Um, whether that's people perceiving you as one gender or the other, or people perceiving you as well because you're young, like can you see there being these sort of connecting tissues, right? That sort of connect your experience of gender to your experience of disability as well. Yeah, um, I definitely think they all have pros and well, I don't know. I guess you could say pros and cons to them, or, mm. or what what have you. Like it, it's a pro right now being myself and being the person I want to be, even if the other day hearing that news made me want to cut my hair, take my nails off and, Mm. you know, appear more masculine Mm. uh, for safety. I know I can't do that because I won't be happy. But at the same time, when I did that, I might've been safer. Mm. Um, And then you know, as far as like disability, when you uh, appear disabled, let's say like with a mobility device, sometimes you're treated better than when you didn't Mm. appear with an aid. Like sometimes people will, I don't know, quote unquote, believe you more or help you more, um, which could be seen as a pro. But then uh, also when you don't appear disabled, quote unquote, like, uh, people might not believe you as much or, Mm. you know, they'll say, oh, but you look fine. You can keep doing this thing. And so they definitely all overlap in a sense of like, they all have their own unique experiences and, Mm. uh, advantages and disadvantages for all of them. And yeah, I mean, it's interesting that for you, the thing that really comes up is this idea of safety, right? You know, that 
um, you may get more care or more uh, personal regard from people or feel safer from, you know, threats of violence from other people, depending on how you present to the world. And the fact that as a patient, you're having to also consider these additional concerns, this concern of safety, when you're already dealing with managing a chronic illness and several diagnoses, that's a huge burden to be carrying. I mean, that's a a really big emotional uh, toll, I imagine that's taking as well in terms of that grappling between being yourself and living your truth and speaking your truth versus being what other people need you to be from both a disability and gender perspective, right? Yeah. It's uh, sort of like I said in my post, I said um, the scales that uh, we have to weigh are pretty heavy um, Mm. in both of these intersectionalities. Like, do I you know, be happy and keep being myself and Mm. painting my nails because I like to paint my nails or do I chop them off because there's other people who don't like them and they might want to hurt me because of it. It's very like dark and heavy to kind of like think about that stuff day to day. Yeah. Well, and especially when you're getting letters from medical institutions saying that they have staff members who've been threatening you. I mean, that's the kind of thing that, um, has got to really make you consider where you are. And, and I mean, probably good thing you're moving, right? Because hopefully you're moving to a place that is much more accepting of individuality that way. That's the plan. Um, yeah. But at the end of the day, um, I can't just dismantle everything I've done because there's people who don't like it. Um, that's not, how we're going to progress and make change. Mm. And uh, it's scary to be yourself and it's scary to take these risks and uh, bad things do happen sometimes to people, but Mm. um, I would rather, uh, you know, die being the person that I want to be. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to go backwards in time. Right. And you don't want to dim your light, as it were. Can you talk to us about your advocacy work specifically? I mean, we know that you're very public about your experiences through social media, your writing, um, your modeling. Can you tell us about, you know, what you have been working toward in terms of chronic illness and disability advocacy in particular? Yeah, so mostly I aim for talking about things that people don't want to talk about um, or that they're not used to talking about. Um, With a lot of minority communities, we kind of have these uh, specific narratives that get told over and over again. So I like to work to changing that up a bit and um, really getting down to those intersectionalities, getting down to the stuff that we don't talk about often. And it's stuff that people are not used to seeing or that might make them uncomfortable. Um, But it's important. That's how we learn and that's how we grow. I want people to come to my platforms and learn something. Um, And as far as modeling and uh, media work that I do, I do that because I want it to be normalized. Um, I want disabilities and 
transness, whether that's, uh, you know, people looking conventionally uh, mask or femme or people looking unconventional like me. I think it's all things that need to be represented. Um, I don't always think that it needs a big storyline behind it. Like when a disabled person's in media and it has to, the show has to be about them because they're disabled. Mm. Like I think that we should be able to just exist sometimes. Right. I think that's important. Um, so those are kind of the main themes of mm. what I would like to see come from the stuff I do. I mean, it's interesting too, because as you say, that idea of like someone being able to just exist as disabled without having to be the center of the conversation, um, you know, the narratives that have been sort of structured around these ideas that people have of disability and signifiers of disability, you almost have to dismantle them by playing the game, right? Like you have to um, go and walk a runway, you know, or make your experience the center of the conversation in order to understand for the time being where we're in this place of destigmatizing um, those experiences. We have to sort of follow that narrative until it becomes spoken about so much that it's no longer the only narrative, right? Yeah. And yeah. I've actually started to, if, you know, people, if someone's listening, that's been following me for like a long time, you know, people might notice my Instagram has changed a lot over the course of a few years. And I've talked about my health less and less, um, or at least the details of my health. And I've done that on purpose because I don't want it to be the center. Like I am disabled, but I don't want that to be the entire conversation. I want it to be like, yeah, like I do all these things. There's this, this, and this, and I'm disabled. And it's a part of, mm. it's a part of me, but it is not all of me. Yes. Yeah. This idea of how much of our identity is encompassed in a single diagnosis or um, a single gender marker, whatever it is that you're trying to get people to understand that it's not all about these boxes that we understand people's existence in. It's much more nuanced a conversation than that. Yeah, because, mm -hmm. um, and I think the media is so important to tackle because, um, the media has real world implications on those people that are portrayed, whether it's a trans person or a disabled person, like we're talking about in my case, um, that's where people are learning their information. That's where they're getting their information. Um, mm. There's some people who don't even know a disabled person. So mm. it's really important how we portray that in media settings. Um, mm. Otherwise it's, it affects the real person. <laughs> Can you think of any uh, examples of that, that you have encountered that were a good use of representation of disability in media? Yeah, so there was that one store, uh, one show. Um, I think it was called Superstore. It was like a, Oh yeah. Superstore. It's still on. It's an NBC show. Yeah. And there's a, a disabled guy who uses a wheelchair yeah. In the show. I don't yeah. think he's, I, you can correct me if I'm wrong. We might have to look it up. I don't think he is actually no, disabled. I don't think no. he is either. I think you're right. Okay. So that's one point that they lost, but I mm. will give them another point And that would be, I don't think that they've ever talked about his disability, not mm. at least as far as I've watched in the show. Um, 
I think it's come up one once or twice where people have said something like, yeah, we need to go over there. And he's been like, guys, I'm in a chair, like just sort of reminding people, you know, but it's never been as, as we've just been discussing the center of his narrative for sure. Yeah. It's never Mm -hmm. been like an episode where it's like this tragic, like situation of his story, his backstory. Mm -hmm. He just exists and he's just disabled. And I think that I've never seen that before. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember I was watching it with my mom one time and I was like, did they ever talk about this? And, you know, she was like, no, he's just, mm. he's just there. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's like, pretty groundbreaking at this stage. Cool. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I've never like, I think about like, if you've ever watched a show and just like, maybe there was a family and they just have a disabled kid. They never just can have a disabled kid. It has to mm. be about like, what's wrong with him. Yes. <laughs> and like, how do they yeah. cure him? Or like, you know, Absolutely. You're absolutely right. I mean, there've been entire shows built around those kinds of narratives. So it's a really good point you make. And you also coach people too, right? So, I mean, I know that your expertise is certainly your own experience. So are you also coaching people who are in living in similar spaces who are, uh, you know, perhaps disabled, chronically ill, things like that? Yes. Um, Mm. I went to school for neuropsychology and that was, um, yep, that was the route I was going to go. Um, but not long after school, um, I decided to, uh, do some life coaching certifications and classes, uh, because at that point I was just too sick to go back to school. And I, Mm. I started that and, um, because it was my experience, that's what I was comfortable giving people advice on, obviously. And, uh, as of right now, um, most of my clients, um, they're all either trans or disabled or both. Mm. Wow. So. so in a sense, you're also like through your clients, diversifying your understanding of your own experience, right? Because they're clients who are having experiences that have intersected with your own. Yeah. They mm. absolutely teach me things all the time. Mm, that's really wonderful. So I, I wanted to pivot a little bit and dig into the healthcare system a little bit. I know we've talked about some of the ups and downs that you've had personally, and I'm wondering in what ways you see the U.S. healthcare system working for patients, if at all, and in what ways you see it falling short and requiring improvements. What are the pros and cons of this system that we have set up here in the U.S. right now? Oh, that's a tough question. It's a big uh, one. I know it's loaded. <laughs> Oh man. Uh, uh. <laughs> I know it is, it is a loaded one, but I mean, even if it's just a couple bullet points, like things that have occurred to you over the years, whether it's through your coaching or through your own experience, you know, particularly things that need to change. But you know, if there are things that maybe don't need to change because there are working, I mean, spoiler alert, very people have, very few people have said that things are actually working. So <laughs> we're open to just criticism here. Um, but yeah, I just would love to get your take because I, I know that healthcare systems from country to country really differ and indeed from state to state, depending on your healthcare coverage um, and accessibility. So I'm curious to know, you know, um, where the healthcare system needs to change, where it needs to improve and build space for the kinds of narratives that people who are living with chronic illness or, and or are trans are living with. Well, in case you wondered, Florida sucks. Um, <laughs> okay. Healthcare. Interesting. Um, it's all very um, elderly centered. Um, mm. That's where most of the funding goes. Right. Um, so if you are younger, 
ill person in Florida. It's not too great for you. Mm. Um, I think this is something I have been working on for a while with writing to government officials and actually working with uh, someone on the health board. I helped her write an article for this. And I think Mm. um, uh, protocols for gender identity and for transness or non-binary-ness is definitely something that uh, needs to be worked around. Mm. Um, You know, we face a lot of discrimination like I just explained or um, sexual assault in medical settings Um, there definitely needs to be a protocol for uh, not divulging someone's information Mm. uh, a way to ask their preferred name and pronouns Um, which is as simple as just asking isn't it yeah it's because it's so apparent that when you speak to healthcare professionals they have no idea how to speak to um trans people and it's Mm. very it can be very offensive and unaffirming um yeah so i would like to see a protocol into Mm. place for that um definitely i don't know how we'll do this but one problem is um the fact that the medical system is not built for chronically ill people yeah this is the Uh, thing that comes up time and time again yeah especially like ERs or even Mm. hospitals, honestly. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've been to the hospital and they can't help me. (laughs) They don't know what to do because they don't, nobody knows about EDS or this or that. Nobody knows. So yeah, um, that's a major problem, isn't it? That's something where if you're going to be in an emergency room, you have to be educated about everything. Exactly. Um, mm. and the long-term care as well, like the, the mm. expense, um, obviously healthcare it's in America, it's like a business. Yeah. Um, it's way too expensive and I've had way too many friends die because they couldn't afford mm. a treatment. I mean, it's, it's barbaric, honestly. Yeah. yeah. Um, it shouldn't be, people shouldn't have to be making GoFundMes for their cancer treatments. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think you kind of like, like that really covers like the main things, you know, obviously there's more detail as you get into how things are run state by state, you know, hospital by hospital, insurance company by insurance company. But you know, that the, the meat of the discussion here is that what you seem to be getting at is this idea that healthcare is not a human right in this country, that there is so much expense involved in both short and long-term care. Um, and that, you know, not accessible either. Um, Yeah. Not accessible. Even, um, I even have clients that, you know, they are like, uh, you know, cisgender, whether it's, um, male or female and disabled, uh, white, and they still, have issues with this Mm. so it's it's like who are I don't know who gets benefits from it because Mm. not even the supposed like privileged people seem to be getting benefits from it Mm. at least from what I talk to so I don't know and then just gets worse from there the more minorities that are intersected so yes 
Yeah. It makes me wonder who benefits from it because I really don't know. Well, the insurance companies, <laughs> I think they're the ones benefiting and, and a few politicians at the yeah. top of the ladder there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you but bring like up a very still, fair point. Yeah. Like I don't know any patients though, that mm. it doesn't seem that that's a thing. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really fair point. So I wanted to sort of pivot us into what will be the, the ending questions, the last two questions of the interview. Um, and they're a little more fun than this question about healthcare, I promise. <laughs> um, and the first I wanted to ask is, I mean, you're someone who's lived with disability for a long time and you coach people who live with disability and you're sort of an expert, right? And I want to know what your top three tips are for someone who maybe suspects something is off health-wise. Maybe they're about to enter this world of chronic illness. Um, maybe they're already living with a diagnosis. Maybe it's EDS. What would you recommend for people who are about to be living a similar life from a healthcare perspective? You have to know your own body. You have mm. to believe no matter what people are telling you, whether it's your family, um, you know, even if it's a doctor and nothing has come up in your test yet or something, um, you've got to believe your body. We know when something is wrong and we know when something is off. Um, sometimes those things might take years to develop. Like I was telling you about the thyroid thing and just yes. been looking odd my whole life and then it finally came to a head and that's very possible it doesn't mm. mean someone is lying you know just because nothing's showing up so um and but a lot of people think that's the case so that would be my best advice is you you've got to believe and stick to that because mm. you know that's what i did i faced a lot of adversity in that sense mm. um but I just kept going because I was like, I know something's wrong. I'm, yeah. I know it is. And, yeah. Mm. You know, because no one from the outside can, can tell you that. Yes. So true. What else? What other tips would you give? Number one is trust yourself, trust your body. Yes, please. Um, well, a lot of advice that I give my clients is about productivity um, that's a huge one that I talk with all my clients about. There's so many people that come to me and say they don't think they're, uh, worth anything because, you know, they can't finish school or, uh, I don't know, they're not married yet because mm. their illness has affected, you know, every aspect of their life. Um, and so that advice would be, you know, it's not linear. Like yeah. your life is going at your own pace and you have to make sure to take breaks for yourself and uh, rest. You can't always be productive. You can't always be doing what other people want to do. Even if your brain is just as active as it was before you were disabled, mm. um, you know, you have to listen to your body. Um, sometimes I'm like, I get ahead of myself. I'm like, Oh, I can do all these things because my brain is so ready yeah. to do it. My body's not. So mm. you have to listen to that and, you know, realize it's okay if you go a little bit slower than other people and you can still find your own little ways to be productive and mm. that's just as worthy. Yeah. 
I like that you bring that up. That hasn't come up a lot, but it's so true. And it's certainly a common theme among so many of us who live with chronic illness. Yeah. Mm. So listen to your body. Productivity is not necessarily how your worth is measured. What else? Oh, what else? What else? One Um, more tip. One more tip for people who are living that spoony life. Well, I'm wondering if it's something about advocacy too, because so much of your experience has been about that you've learned how to advocate for yourself. How can people do that if, if they trust their bodies and they know what's going on? You know, do you have a piece of advice for being heard, being believed and listened to? Persistency. I mean, you got to stay persistent. Um, yeah. You know, you can't just give up because a couple times someone told you you were an anxious lady or something. <laughs> you have yeah. to, uh, there, there is a doctor and there is a person that's willing to sit down and talk with you and listen. Like the doctor I have now is amazing. He'll spend hours with me. Mm-hmm. You know, he takes time with each of his patients and, um, someone like that does exist. You really just might have to look for it, especially if you're dealing with an invisible condition or a rare condition. Um, but you know, you, you can't give up. You have to do your own research. Definitely. Like it's okay to come with, um, facts and with research. Cause I think we think of doctors as like these all knowing beings mm. just, you know, we're like, Oh, well the doctor knows. And it's like, Yes, like they know things, but they also have opinions. Like you can mm-hmm. go to one doctor and they'll say one thing and another doctor might say another thing. Yeah. Um, like I've had doctors tell me many different reasons as to why I have seizures. Mm. They all know I have seizures. They've seen it. They've seen it on my brain, my brain scans. Um, but, you know, there are tangible things, but there's also opinions that play into that. Like they're not, they're not all known. Like doctors can be wrong yes. and it's okay to know that and to come prepared with your information. And if you hear them say something that you know isn't true, it's okay to say, well, I've looked that up before or I've gotten this other opinion or mm-hmm. it's even okay to just walk away yeah. and go somewhere else. And that's all wrapped up in that kind of persistence. I think that's a really good point. What about, and this is the really fun list that we're going to end on. Um, It's a list about joy. I want to know what the top three things are in your life that give you unbridled joy. Like, you know, despite the fact that obviously you've had to work around your needs from a disability point of view, right? This could be lifestyle management kind of things that you're just unwilling to compromise on. Um, It could be guilty pleasures, secret indulgences, comfort activities, especially if you're having like a flare. But what are the top three things in your life that make you so happy that you just absolutely wouldn't give them up? Well, as previously stated, getting my nails done. (laughs) I know you do love those. And you always have pretty amazing nails. So there you go. (laughs) So that is one thing. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like a self-care activity of mine that I'm willing to uh, indulge in both Mm -hmm. financially and, um, you know, just because. Um. Yeah, because it gives you joy because you get to look at them and that makes you happy. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, speaking to my community, whether mm. it's through my comments or um, talking to you, 
Hmm. or in my messages, um, collaborating with brands that maybe uh, are owned by disabled people or queer people. Hmm. Um, I like connecting to people and um, feeling a part of the community because Hmm. sometimes you can just make a post and it feels disconnected, but I like to stay, I like to stay in touch with people. Hmm. That's lovely. And that's so important, isn't it? To humanize your own experience too. Yeah. Hmm. Um, And the last thing would probably be Atlas. That's lovely. I was hoping Atlas would be on that list. (laughs) Well, he's looking at me, so that might have to something to do with um, (laughs) that because I think he would be upset if I didn't say that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're very glad you have him because it's always lovely to see you guys interacting on your posts and everything. And before I let you go, can you tell everyone where they can find you online too? Yeah. So the disabled hippie on Instagram, that's where I do most of my stuff. Um, and even if I do something outside of there, I always post it or link it on there. So that's my, Mm. uh, my place. Yeah. I love it. Well, Julian, is there anything else you'd like to share before I set you free into your evening? (laughs) Thank you. Um, no, I don't think so. I think we covered Covered, everything and more. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate you being so open about your own journey and sharing so that so many of us don't feel alone. Um, It's wonderful to commune with yet another amazing member of the Spoonie community. And uh, I thank you so much for all the work you do and all the honesty that you share. Thank you. It was nice to meet you and thank you for having me. Of course. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.